There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules! No rules! Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. This week on a very special episode of Double Dragon, I include my extended conversation with medievalist Kavita Mudon Finn. We talk a little bit about her new book and the latest episode of House of the Dragon. So that's sort of the class it up the joint segment of the podcast. And then Steve and I spin the whole thing into the gutter. Okay. Without further ado, here is a serious scholar who did her PhD at Oxford and taught at MIT. If you want to keep it classy, go ahead and end the podcast after that segment. Here's Kavita Mudanfin. Kavita Mudanfin, I'm so glad you're back. I can't wait to talk to you about this first, well, I guess we've almost got an entire season of House of the Dragon. We do. We are so close to having an entire season of House of the Dragon. Well, I've watched through the penultimate episode. Is that where you're at as well? That is where I'm at. Yes. Before we do anything else, I do want to mention your forthcoming book, because I think that a lot of people will be interested in that book. Um, This is the Global Medievalism book. Uh, it's actually not forthcoming anymore. It's out. Um, yeah, right. it is out. It can be purchased through Cambridge University Press. Um, and uh, I can give you, I'll uh, go ahead and email you a link that you can then put up. Absolutely. But let's let's mention the title and talk a, just talk a, a bit about what the book does. Of course. Uh, the title is Globe, It's just Global Medievalism and Introduction. I co-authored it with Helen Young, who is uh, based out of Deakin University in Australia. In fact, um, my listeners are familiar with Helen because I had her on to talk a little Lord of the Rings. Oh, fantastic. Stuff. Good. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, basically what, uh, what we're trying to do is um, it's part of a series with Cambridge University Press called the Global Middle Ages series. And it's trying to... The series as a whole is trying to uh, decenter Europe from the discussion of the Middle Ages. We're trying mm. to talk about the Middle Ages as something that didn't just happen in Europe, that didn't just happen to uh, to white people. Um, <laughs> this is, it, it this is revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's weird that this should be a revolutionary idea, I but know. there it is. Um, the yeah the the middle ages was just a time period it happened and yeah, right. the way that we define it is different based on uh based on where you are the middle age what the what someone in china considers to be the middle ages is very different from what someone in europe considers to be the middle ages what someone in japan considers to be the middle mm-hmm. ages very different again um even trying to talk about uh to talk about the different kingdoms in india same kind of thing um the the periodization shifts but one of the things that we're seeing as we go through this series um and as more and more scholars start to speak up about what other parts of the world consider to be the medieval Mm. one of the commonalities that comes out is that it's always this period that later periods are looking back on and are using to kind of think about and negotiate lots of different complex thorny ideas. Mm. Um, Cause, and this actually, I can't take credit for this uh, particular quotation. Uh, this actually comes from Jonathan Shue's book, um, Anti-Racist Medievalisms, but he has this wonderful uh, quotation in the introduction where he says that medievalism is always polemical. And when I say medievalism, I'm talking about later iterations of the medieval it's not the actual. Right. It's the way period. that like uh, folks that are closer to us in time have appropriated certain stories and certain concepts. Exactly. And that exactly. would include everything from Monty Python's Holy Grail to retellings of the medieval period that we see in, you know, movies like The Last Duel and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and and I would actually expand it even further. I you could even look you could look at something like Shakespeare's history plays as a form of medievalism. Interesting. Um, or you could look at uh, the pre-Raphaelites in the nineteenth century are absolutely a form of medievalism. Walter Scott's novels. Um, I think uh, anything that's sort of post uh, 
anything that is looking at the medieval period as its own kind of distinct separate period um to me at least constitutes a kind of medievalism obviously what shakespeare is doing with medievalism is very very different from what later um later writers are doing with it interesting Um, but the general approach is kind of still there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then of course we're going to get to the the show here but i do have a question really quick from a Mm -hmm. listener named melanie and i thought you'd be the person to ask so it says (laughs) So Melanie says, when did primogeniture become the dominant practice for monarchies? And then she's got a couple other questions for us, but I think that maybe we should define terms and then maybe have you speak to, like, where do we see the seeds of this practice? Jeez. Oh, that's hard. So, like, primogeniture is one of those. So primogeniture, first of all, just means person in charge, passes everything to their eldest child. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean men, huh? No, it doesn't, no. Uh, Straight primogeniture, like just primogeniture, no no additional words, no additional uh, concepts attached to it, is just something, is inheritance through the eldest child. That's it. Yeah, interesting. Primogeniture. so yeah, that, that's that's really all it is. There's a bunch of different types of primogeniture. There's what's called agnatic primogeniture, which is when the male child inherits. Right. And the reason why that became a thing, I mean, it's just patriarchy, basically. Yeah. As my four-year-old would say, that's patriarchy behavior. <laughs> um it it began it's essentially a way it's a way of consolidating land ownership territory ownership and uh and uh finances it's it's consolidation it's a way of consolidating yeah and i power. would say that goes that's a very very ancient concept yes but mm-hmm. i guess the question is and this was melanie's follow-up question is that were there instances where the women are more prominent in this whole scheme and then of course do we see that change in sort of Tudor England where the women are not a factor at all and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that it's interesting like because the women are actually a factor many many times over and uh it is and in some cases the the succession actually hinges on that um because for instance you look at something like the Wars of the Roses in uh, in England Part of the reason that starts is because of a succession crisis, because you have a king who does not have a direct heir, which means they have to go back to several, they have to go back several generations and figure out, okay, who's the next person in line? It's just like what happens at the start of House of the Dragon. Right. Um, But we they immediately run into a problem because the previous king had seven sons and all of those sons had children of their own and that made that makes things tremendously complicated um and you also have the fact that all of those sons married into other royal families and other noble families and all of those families have their own interests and everyone is politicking and everyone is kind of moving around behind the scenes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and this is ha- and this actually the same kind of thing happens from about the end of the 14th century in england all the way through to the end of the Tudor period in a lot of ways, um, because these same families are constantly grasping for power. And depending on which king is in charge, they have more or less of it. Because mm. um, what we see under the Tudors is actually the consolidation of royal power. We see a lot of these royal, a lot of these, <clears throat> sorry about that. I've got a frog in my throat. Um, okay. A lot of these um, aristocratic families kind of whittled down through the Wars of the Roses. All of their sons keep dying in battle and all of their daughters' fortunes keep getting snapped up by other families um, and eventually by the crown itself, hmm. um, such that when Henry VIII is king at the beginning of the 16th century, most of the other royal claimants are dead. Like, not just and, and, and the ones that aren't dead, he actually goes ahead and does away with them. Um, hmm. like he, he killed a number of, uh, of his rivals during his reign. And we kind of see that discussion in this most recent episode of House of the Dragon. Oh, yeah. I guess we could transition to that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's sort of the, it's sort of the common sense and Otto kind of represents this. The common sense is it'd be better to have zero rivals because that 
makes the chances of a civil war all that much, you know, we, we can actually avert a civil war if we just eliminate our rivals with assassination. And I wonder if if that is drawing from the period we're talking about, that, that idea. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, Machiavelli has a line, uh, Machiavelli advises with it uh, in his book, The Prince. Um, he said at one point, he says, you know what, it's kind of distasteful. But the fact is that if you take over a territory and there is someone who's already in charge, you have to do something about those people because they will be mm. a flashpoint for anyone who wants to rebel against you. Right. And it's interesting that this episode is kind of bookended by two people who are put in a position to completely eliminate their rivals. Um, at the beginning, we have Otto suggesting it in the small council and saying, look, we have to get rid of Rhaenyra and Damon. They are too dangerous. We cannot let them live. Right. And Alicent pushes against that. She doesn't want that blood on her hands. Um, and at the very end of the episode, Rainy, and this is, of course, completely spoilery. I, I, I assume we could talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah we absolutely okay. can. Uh, at the very end of the episode, Rhaenys gets that chance. She's standing there in the dragon pit oh, on her dragon. A great, yeah, it's a great And example. it's this incredible, tense, spectacular moment. And she's staring Alicent in the eye and she has the chance. She could take out the entire huh. green faction in 30 seconds flat. And for whatever reason, she doesn't do it. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. That moment to me was a little bit underwhelming. It didn't work for me either. It did not and work for me either. I felt like, and I, I kind of, I, I kind of appreciate a little bit more. I was talking with a friend of mine, and he was like saying uh, that her her choice to decide against it was the most interesting thing that could have happened in that moment. And my my view was like, mm, I think they just needed a set piece to like have some kind of dramatic flourish, but they couldn't actually make it make sense with the story that has to follow. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, but I'm I actually do appreciate it more now that you've said what you said because we do have this episode bookended with Alicent who decides not to kill her rivals, and then Renice also deciding not to kill her rivals. Um, 
Yeah. And of course that that's always going to create more political trouble than you know, even though the the alternative is unsavory, like Machiavelli says, mm-hmm. it might absolutely throw this whole thing to, into a civil war. And Rainey's has it has a chance to, like you said, in thirty seconds, avert a civil war, and she chooses not to do it. Yeah, and the thing is, like, might there still have been a rebellion if Rainey's had killed the entire Green faction in the Dragon Pit? Yeah, I mean, House Hightower is not going to sit in Old Town and let. Uh, Otto and Alicent and their and uh, and Alicent's kids get murdered. I don't think mm. uh, I don't think um, Otto's brother is going to let that stand. But without a figurehead, without someone who they can coalesce around, um, I don't see that. I don't see any rebellion going anywhere. Like, who? What are they going to do? Yeah, every rebellion kind of needs a story, and the story yeah, usually story. Re- revolves yeah. around a personality. And if you don't have mm-hmm. the personality to tell the story that needs to be told, it's hard to rally troops, you know? It is. Like, you you so. need, I mean, that's in, in uh, the main A Song of Ice and Fire series, like, part of the reason that Robert's rebellion works is because Robert is this charismatic individual. Yeah. Like, right. he, may be, he may not be a very good king, and I absolutely believe he is not a very good king, but in terms of being sort of a charismatic military leader, he's actually very good at that. Yeah. And, you know, the, they, they're able to tell the story that the Baratheons are connected mm. to Targaryens way back yeah. in the day. That's part of the narrative, too. So anyway, both of us agree that that maybe could have been told better. But I'm kind of curious to hear over the last nine episodes, like, what were the elements that you thought really brought sort of a medieval mentality to life in an interesting way. And, you know, maybe maybe either by parallel or by just sort of exploiting a concept that has been lost in the modern world. I will be honest, this show has felt far less medieval to me. It feels to me like a Renaissance tragedy. Oh, it really, really does. Like, that is the vibe huh. that I get from it. Like, the medieval trappings are still there, uh-huh. But the the storytelling choices, the things that they're choosing to focus on, um, how they're really kind of delving into these these thorny questions of power politics, these thorny questions of how to leverage the personal and the political. Yeah. Um, these long, slow scenes with tons of dialogue and tons of just people looking at each other and face acting like all of this, all of this stuff to me yeah, feels like the setting is still medieval, but it's very Renaissance medievalism to go back to what we were talking about before. Like that it's, it's this wonderful mesh of generic conventions that I am just like rolling in. Like it's catnip. Um, like <laughs> so what I, would I be like it. an example I, of a scene or a, a storyline that, that has kind of struck you in that way. Anything with Otto Hightower, like Reese Ifans is channeling Francis Walsingham, like through this entire season. Like he is, he is absolutely channeling like the Elizabethan Puritan. I have been telling people since the very first episode, I'm like, Otto's a Puritan, everyone. You've got to watch him. <laughs> Don't trust him. He's a Puritan. Um, and honestly, like I when I when I was last on this uh, when I was last on this podcast, I talked about Stephen and Matilda. I talked about the the 12th century anarchy as um the main what i thought like the main inspiration that uh, the george r R. martin was drawing on in fire and blood and i stand by that but for house of the dragon i will be honest it's not a medieval precedent that i'm seeing it's a it's an early modern one it's so tell me about why all right you use the term puritan (laughs) i'm curious why otto might be have parallels with a puritan mentality (laughs) I guess it's less pure. It's, it's probably less Puritan. It's more just um, prod- a, a very particular strain of Protestantism that ran through the Privy Council of Queen Elizabeth I. Um, she had several advisors who were hyper competent and very sort of fixated on the idea of making sure that England always, always remained Protestant. Um, and she always had them in her small council and they did very good work for like they were very effective on her behalf. Hmm. Um, but also they they did not do savory things all the time. Like one of them was very much instrumental in getting Mary Queen of Scots killed. Um, 
Yeah, that's something Otto Hightower would do. (laughs) Yeah, to me, it really feels like a Renaissance tragedy. Like you get these speech, these big speeches that people give. And that actually is what I thought was missing from that rainy scene. Mm. I feel like they could have solved that problem one of two ways. Uh, the first way I can't take credit for it. This, it was my husband who came up with it because he's uh, he used to work. In, he works in like industrial logistics. And so his immediate response was, where's the back door to the dragon pit? Why did she not go out through the back door? <laughs> Which is a perfectly valid uh, question to ask. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. But if what she wanted to do was cause a scene, which that's that's a choice. That's a choice that she could make. Um, the way that they could have really made that work for me personally would have been to have the scene as it was, but instead of just locking eyes with Allison and not saying anything, give her a speech. Practically, sure, you can't hear what she's saying. There's too much dragon destruction mm. going on. But from a dramatic standpoint, you give her a speech, she lays it down, she pins everything on Allison. And she says, look, you have the power to stop this. You uh, cancel this coronation, recant, swear fealty to Rhaenyra, and we can end this right now. Hmm. And she pins it on Alicent. And she publicly does this, because this is, of course, happening in full view of everything. Right. And yes, Rhaenys would still be causing enormous amounts of collateral damage. She would still be uh, completely destroying her reputation with the with the people of King's Landing by, you know, killing them. Yeah. But she still gets to get her point across, which is, I am deliberately sparing you. Don't make me regret it. Right. Right. And I feel like that needed words. I feel yeah. like that really needed to be spelled out. Right. And I wonder if... I mean, one of the things that I've come up with in my own headcanon here is that she fully intends to Dracarys all of them. Mm-hmm. And then when she gets to that moment, if you if you're not <laughs> if you're not a murderer, it's hard to murder people. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think there's oh, yeah. something about, there's something about like yeah, that's not something that she does, and it's actually a hard thing to do to take another human life. I mean, yeah. now she she's just taken. I don't know. <laughs> the, the dragon has just <laughs> killed hundreds just of people. Kill several hundred people at <laughs> so least. I, yeah, I think at the end <laughs> of the day, a lot I don't of dead know. people. <laughs> what about um? What about Alicent? I'm wondering if you think that Alicent has a parallel in your research because here we have someone who is entirely invested in getting her son onto the throne and she will, you know, she'll almost do anything to make that happen, even though she knows that it's a bit unsavory to do it. Is there a mother Mm -hmm. in your research that you, that you kind of feel when you see Alicent? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And I talked about her actually in the the recap that I did of the previous episode, The Lord of the Tides. Um, and I'm going to talk about her again. Yeah. Tell us uh, where the, and... our readers or our listeners can find that if they want to read that. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, kvmfin.wordpress.com. I, uh, I've i recapped uh, the first eight so far. I'm working on the uh, the ninth one right now. Um and they're they're getting longer and longer. Like my last one was about five thousand words long. Like I I just I have so many things to say. Um, All right, but, so back to back to Allison. Yeah, back to Allison. Um, I brought I put her kind I put her character in conversation with uh, Catherine de Medici, who was the Queen mm. Regent of France for the better part of the late sixteenth century. Um, she had been married to King Henry II of France. Um, and he died in a freak tournament accident in the year 1559. Um, they had lots of kids, including at least four sons. I think there might, I'm, I'm not entirely 100% certain how many sons they had. Um, but, uh, they had at least three of them and possibly four, um, because three of them became king. Uh, mm. First, there was Francois, who died fra- who died shortly thereafter because he was extremely ill. Uh, second, there was Charles, who actually reigned for a while um, and then died without uh, without children. And mm-hmm. then the third one was Henri, uh, Henry. So she, so which is to say that you're talking three fairly short, not especially successful reigns. And mm. Catherine was the commonality between them. Right. And and she had 
she has this incredibly complicated reputation. Um, and it's one of those things that has been very difficult for uh, modern scholars to untangle because so much of the source material is violently sexist. Like it is, like they say just absolutely horrendous things about her, not just sec not just because of sexism, but also because of xenophobia. She was Italian. Uh, and yeah. she married into the French royal family and there were all of these rumors about, oh yeah, she poisons everyone. Um, and she's got her sort of pet astrologer. And yeah. she's I, got like- Just as an Italian, I feel like I should say that <laughs> it's not implausible. We do use poison <laughs> from time to time. But go, no, go ahead and continue. From time to time. A little light poisoning here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So she she looks like the political mastermind. But then it's, it's, of course, hard to tell if some of that is due to the stories people tell about her and the sexism yeah. that, and the xenophobia that's attached to those stories, right? Yeah, because Catherine, I mean, one of the things that happened to Catherine, like, yes, she was the regent and she had the title, but she was constantly having to fight to, to to deal with these different factions at court that were mm -hmm. led by again these powerful noble families, and all of them wanted a piece of the uh, they wanted a piece of the throne, mm -hmm. and so she spent her entire regency like having to sort of run interference between these different families, and uh, some of them were more violent than others. And there, and also mixed in with all of this was religious war because this right. is the 16th century and you have the Catholics and you have the Protestants sure. and they are not getting along. Um, and Catherine is also the woman who, like they, the thing that she is most associated with, the most notorious event in her regency um, is one of the inspirations, I think, for the Red Wedding. Um, and that oh. is the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572. Um, which was uh, when Catherine's daughter Marguerite was uh, in, was married to the Protestant King Henry of Navarre. And thousands of Protestants came to Paris to witness what was supposed to be this big act of reconciliation between the Catholic faction and the Protestant faction. These two people were, these two um, royal children were going to get married. Everyone was going to be happy. Except then they started killing each other. More accurately, the Catholics started it. Um, <laughs> it was specifically it was the it was the Guise family. I should not like not all Catholics. Hashtag mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it was the Guise family that started it. Okay. Um, they did not like this wedding. They wanted Marguerite to marry into their family so that they could then have another avenue to take uh, to take potential royal power. Um, instead, Catherine decided yeah. to marry her to a Protestant prince. And the Guise family decided, you know what? I'm going to cause problems on purpose. And they did. It, it is absolute, I'm, I may sound like I'm making light of it, but it is, it is an absolutely horrific thing that happened. Um, lot, thousands of people were killed in the streets of oh Paris. My gosh. It is something that like the, the, the Royal family of France never really recovered from that. You know what? Um, it almost makes the red wedding pale in comparison. It actually, it's about on. I mean, when you think about the Red Wedding, when you think about how many people were actually killed outside the Red Wedding, oh, including, sure, sure, sure. I mean, you got you got to keep it high. Like Tywin talks about, like killing twenty people at dinner, but no, like thousands of people died. Right. Oh my um, gosh. Because Arya, we we see like from Arya and the Hound, they they're they're just killing people. Yeah, because the dispute is triggered. Maybe it's not, you know, doesn't mm -hmm. encapsulate the entire dispute, but. The, it is it is triggered by the question of who married whom. Yeah. That's interesting. But here, like, Alicent, I very much get kind of a Catherine de' Medici um, parallel from her because it's not from the outside. Like, if I were, say, Rhaenyra, watching this mm -hmm. from far away and getting kind of the, the news that she is eventually going to get from Rhaenys about what's happened... Um, I would assume, oh my God, Alicent has been planning this all along. She and Otto yeah. were perfectly in sync. Look at how smoothly this could, like a, yeah. until Rhaenys bursts out of the floor, the greens were actually doing pretty well. Like this was a well-oiled machine. I was honestly yeah. quite impressed with Otto Hightower's uh, advanced planning on this. Like 
they they had cut off all communications they had they had, they even had the coronation planned i would not be surprised if they already had like all the decor stored in the dragon pit right and i think that in the book it's a little bit different but you could almost say like he has at least 20 high lords and ladies in the city already you know ready yeah. to kneel it's almost like he's thought ahead like you guys are going to have to stick around for weeks, maybe months, because I'm going to need, when this is going to happen, when this goes down, I'm going to need you to kneel. But yeah. he, he clearly has not told them why they're around. And, yeah. you know, of course, in the book, this is a little bit different. But, um, yeah, he's clearly thought ahead for sure. I love that in the uh, the council scene early on, uh, Tylen Lannister just gives the game away. Like early, yeah. he's like, "Oh yeah, out." He's given his blessing to our well laid plans. I'm like, "Oh mm-hmm. my god, you, <laughs> you pat." Well, you just gave and it's it almost <laughs> like, yeah, like what's what's the point of subterfuge at that point? True. Um, yeah, but I do have one more question. Uh, I'm wondering about Laris Strong. I wonder if <laughs> is is this guy is this guy just too much to to find a parallel or are there sort of characters in the shadows that history kind of like suspects that they were doing dirty but you never never held like a prominent role but you're pretty sure that they're doing nasty things behind the the curtains yeah yeah i mean it's again like i i I feel like i'm doing italians dirty here but there's (laughs) It's just history. There's, a, there, there's this character who uh, is kind of Cesare Borgia's uh, bodyguard. His name was Michelotto. And he had this reputation for being the murder guy. Like uh-huh. anytime the Borgias needed someone murdered, he was he would mysteriously mm. be there. And then he would mysteriously not be there. And someone would you be You should there. have seen this guy's business cards. They just yeah. said the murder guy. Yeah, Michelotto, the murder guy. It's like all the right. murder hoodie on the show. Like they yeah. all like anytime Damon is going out to murder someone, he yeah, wears the same put, hoodie. Put on put on the Italian hoodie. Yeah. Yeah, and so, now Eamon has started doing it too. It's great. All right. So tell me more about uh, the murder guy. The murder guy. Okay, so uh, Michelotto was essentially this, uh, he, he was a servant. He was a guy who was in the Borgia family's household. And I I don't know what, if he had a formal role, but my impression has always been that he was kind of Cesare's bodyguard. He was his guy. And he has, and there are a number of instances where he is, he is on the record as having literally murdered people in broad daylight, like in front of witnesses. Mm. Um, he, in fact, uh, well, that's murdered... a little Kristen Cole right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of Kristen Cole kind of interesting. Like sometimes it's wide open. Sometimes it's right uh, in the wide open, and sometimes it's behind people's backs, and he's never caught. Like it's Machiavelli is clearly fascinated by this man. He mentions him a bunch of times. Uh-huh. Um, and he's like, "What is with this dude?" Uh, but Laris, like, it's interesting because I, one of the things I found tremendously interesting about this episode was how much time and how much energy they devoted to the way information is flowing and how, who, <laughs> which characters know what, because there are so many scenes that begin with who knows this, who have you told, who is aware of this information? Um, where is this character we need to be we need to keep information under control right. um and what i want more information i want to know more about my saria i want more i don't think she's dead i think she survived oh, and no, i want yeah, I to she know survived. what she's doing yeah no i think i yeah you haven't seen the last of her for sure no, we um, can't have. There's not a chance. If it, I don't, <laughs> I follow. George, this is a George R. R. Martin thing, and he follows comic book rules. If you don't see a body, yeah, they may still be around. <laughs> right, you can always bring them back if you don't see a body. Yeah, that's yes. that's fantastic. Now, I I just I'm curious if you have any ideas or or if you would have any sort of preferences for how you see this season wrap up before the season finale hits us okay i i mean we're going we're obviously so we've had our bottle episode with the greens so yeah. i think what we're going to get is either a bottle episode with the blacks or a slight like with the with Rhaenyra's faction yeah, yeah. or with 
or maybe a longer episode that has a good chunk that's just on Dragonstone and people reacting and what's going on. Like, oh yeah, you got to see the consequence. To you to have what to just see happened. the consequences because Rhaenys right. is going to show up and she is starting a war, and this is big. Well, I'm fascinated. I've you know this last episode was a little bit underwhelming to, for me, but I. In general, I've been very happy with this show so far, and I'm hoping I have high hopes for the season finale. I, I'm 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 really looking forward to it. I have already enjoyed this season more than I enjoyed any individual season of Game of Thrones. Really? I'll go ahead and oh put that goodness! Out there. That is yeah. high praise. That is high praise. Yeah, because. Even like even the first seasons of Game of Thrones, like part of my problem with it was, of course, I was coming at it having read and reread the books so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had very clear images in my head of who the characters were. So it to be to give the show its full due, it took me a couple of episodes to kind of get readjusted to who the characters were. Interesting. Um, but. Like, I think my favorite season of Game of Thrones was probably season three. Um, It was either three or four. Um, Because, like, I loved a lot of things in one and two. uh, But there were also several elements in the story that really, like, threw me out and I couldn't handle it. Interesting. Um, Yeah. But, uh, But overall, this show, I mean... But the thing is, what what I have to acknowledge about Game of Thrones is that this show could not exist without Game of Thrones. Absolutely, the way Absolutely. that it's made, the the it, they couldn't have made this couldn't have been the first one. They had to have Game of Thrones already in existence before mm-hmm. they could make this show because the reason this show is able to be so deep and dense and complicated and delve into the world building the way that it does is because the world is already established. It's a lot like the Tolkien uh, stuff. Like you can delve deeper into the Tolkien mythology now because people already have images in their heads of what to expect. That's right. That's right. Like if someone says, Hey, this person is an elf. um, You, you can have a pretty reasonable expectation that your audience will know what you're talking about. Yes, that's right. And I think that that this show is building on that foundation. And I will say that I do miss some of the character development that we got, you know, yes. for, for for so many beloved characters in a Game of Thrones. Yes. I I feel like all of the all of these characters are fascinating, but I do miss the you know, it's going to take 3 weeks to get a to, from A to B, and antics yeah. will ensue a, upon the road because the road is just as important to you know this plot as what happens in these courtrooms. Yeah, uh, you know you can actually lose a hand along the road if you're not careful, and that's going to change your one of your favorite characters dramatically, uh, and, and may you know may propel that character from being a heel to a hero. Um, yeah. So all of that kind of stuff, I kind of feel... We're not getting it as much. We're not getting that in that. But that's not this show. That's not what this show is. And I think it's that It's two now different that... kinds of adaptations. Yes. It's this one. That's that's why I, I know I'm sort of beating my Renaissance drum here. But um, that's why I keep coming back to that. Because that is really what this feels like to me. Because the way what's being dramatized is a series of moments. Right. We're not getting the intervening kind of, we're not getting the transitions. We're not getting these, these intervening missing scenes. Um, that's for all the fanfic writers out there. Uh, and I, and please, please do that. <laughs> um, right, 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 right. But, right, right. Uh, but really the, the difference between kind of adapting a song of ice and fire is a song of ice and fire. You're in these characters heads um, you're following them through not just these big tumultuous scenes, but everything that's happening in between. Yeah, you're um, seeing the world yeah. from Sansa's perspective, whereas in yes. Fire and Blood, it's like, you know, this maester is going to imagine what, you know, these what's going on in these rooms. And mm-hmm. the maester may not have been in those rooms, probably wasn't no. in those rooms. And so you're right. These are two different kinds of stories and you almost have to approach them differently in order to appreciate each one for what it yes. is. And I think it took me a bit, but I feel like I'm really, I'm really into this season. I, I'm really looking yeah. forward to see how they wrap it. 
Yeah, I mean, and when I say that I enjoy well, that I'm enjoying House of the Dragon more than uh, I enjoyed any individual season of Game of Thrones, part of the reason for that is because um, of how it's being adapted. Like the story in House of the Dragon is mm. objectively better than what we got in Fire and Blood. I enjoyed Fire and Blood as a puzzle box narrative, but I did not necessarily enjoy it as a story. Right. Yes. Whereas right. House of the Dragon, like. House of the Dragon. Yeah, this is show is significantly to, yeah. better than the source material. Yes, yes, it is, and I mean, and like I said, I, I enjoyed Fire and Blood. I, I find it, I find it highly entertaining to read, but it's it's not the same kind of storytelling. It's a yeah, very it's a different, different genre. Kind of it's a different genre. Now, um, I want to thank you for coming on, and mm-hmm. of course, if people are interested in reading your recaps of each episode, again, they can go to... Uh, they can go to kvmfinn.wordpress.com. Um, I should have, as I said, uh, all of the episodes for this season thus far. I am working on episode nine right now, and I'm hoping to get it up today. Awesome. Fantastic. You know, Steve, I consistently forget to set the line for the next week's Cheek Speak. Mm. Mm. I'm good about looking into the past i'm not great about looking into the future so i think we ought to do that first well i think it should be set pretty high because i mean my understanding is this episode's name is ass cracks of fire (laughs) oh oh, really i hadn't heard that oh yeah yeah do you think the fire is a metaphor or do you think there's will be actual fire <laughs> we'll, we'll see I, well i actually we won't see i, I guess this is actually going to be the darkest filmed episode ever so this so, kind of brings uh, up an interesting question if a dragon breathes fire what does a dragon flatulate oh that's that's a good question um i mean it, I would, it would make sense that it's fire right okay well i'll challenge that a little bit um do you burp farts so yeah, sometimes it's really well, bad. Okay. <laughs> it can be really bad. Yes, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> no, but I would say I mean they're both gaseous, right? They're both sure. They're yes, by like they're both ex- expressions of gas. Welcome right? to but... science for six-year-olds with Steve and That's Anthony. Right. <laughs> What's the difference between burps and farts? <laughs> Well, glad you tuned into Double Dragon to find out. Um, well, what I'm saying is, is that um, there's different fuel, right? I mean, we have the same, the same thing is is coming out, but like what, like the mm-hmm. filter in which it's coming out of, right? I mean, so like, go on. <laughs> your burps are gonna smell more like the food you consumed, like freshly consumed, say, or more. Freshly say more. Consumed. Say a lot more. <laughs> If I have Doritos and I burp, the burp is going to smell a little bit more like Doritos. Mm, okay. Because the food goes into the mouth and it goes into the mouth in its, you know, kind of more pure form, right? Mm-hmm. Now, later, that food goes through some changes. And those same Doritos may not smell like Doritos. Should should they be inspired? My fart be inspired. So by them. what you're saying is that the the fire that comes out of the dragon anus is probably purple or green or maybe a, a maybe I don't know an indigo. What do you think about? It's probably that? just the sulfur. Okay, so this isn't you know this is one of those things that I guarantee you George Martin has thought about. <laughs> Wouldn't that be like I wonder how people would have felt if like. Instead of Danny laying waste to everybody with fire, she just farted everyone to death. Yeah, that would have. I think that would have gone over a little bit better, at least. You think so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, fine. You know, after after seeing that, they're like, you know what, Bran is fine. <laughs> okay, here's a review. This is from Robin Elliot. Funny and unique. This podcast always offers unique, interesting, and hilarious takes on House of the Dragon. If you don't enjoy this podcast, you're Laris. That's a little strong, don't you think? So was this written after we knew about his fetish? (laughs) 
I all right. Let's see. When was this? It says it was written on Monday. Yes, it was written. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> after yeah. the fest. Uh, yeah, I would say, uh, Robin, that. I mean, this podcast isn't for everyone. I mean, we just spent five minutes on dragon farts. I, I would imagine that. Not- so I would say this is very much for Laris. <laughs> After that conversation, <laughs> I, I do appreciate that you think it's funny and unique. We love your listenership. Let's not, you know, degrade other people by calling them names. Um, or maybe this person has a high view of Laris. You know, maybe, maybe I am making the, an assumption here. Oh, maybe this person views Laris as the hero of the narrative. Got it. And so if you're, yeah, okay, interesting. Well, that's one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. I am usually barefoot during all of these uh, these recordings. Mm-hmm. If that helps anybody. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm only looking at his feet the entire time. <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if if these Zoom cameras could talk. <laughs> okay. This is from. I think it's Monka Joe, maybe? I don't know. It says, great content with a lighter side. The well-timed humor fills the void of Tyrion's absence. I always picture the Hanna-Barbera character Muttley when the hosts laugh. <laughs> Good times, great t- content, don't stop. I think that that's aimed at me. I've been told that my laugh is a little bit like Muttley. <laughs> Yeah, and usually Muttley is laughing at the expense of something, right? Like I don't know how often he's actually genuinely entertained. Mm-hmm. He's he's more of he's fueled by Schadenfreude, so I feel like that's also on that brand checks for you. out. That checks out. Yeah, yeah. Okay, finally, I'm going to read a review, Steve, not for House of the Dragon, <laughs> but a retractable hose on Amazon. <laughs> this is a review for a podcast that you might have heard of called Cocoons of Horror. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. People may not know that Steve and I also do a film podcast called Cocoons of Horror. It's, it's sort of like our vanity project. This podcast that we're doing right now allows us to do the other podcast. Yeah, so basically we've, anything that, that this generates, we waste it. We, earn, we each earn about $20 a season for House of the Dragon. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We we put that into a nice bottle of Woodford Reserve, and we drink it as we watch films like Teen Wolf Two. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which we 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 will cover Teen Wolf Two. I promise. Heaven forbid it's not streaming and we have to rent it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I checked. Really, it's really, a, really, cut, really cuts into our problem. Amazon Prime. I promise you don't. Oh, perfect. <laughs> you will not pay for Teen Wolf Two. All right, so this is a review from Fathom 6. It says, who's laughing now? This is a review for Cocoons of Horror. It says, who's laughing now? I am. Please return and do the Evil Dead series. Mm. And I, I did not read this before I texted you yesterday and suggested that we launch season three with Evil Dead 2. And so I saw that this morning, and I thought, "Oh, this we're we're gonna give Fathom Six what he's been asking for." Well, or give him a little bit. Well, well the middle part of what he's asking for. He's asking for three things, and we're gonna give him the middle part, which I think is kind of a nice compromise. It's yeah, compromise. sure. I mean, this next season—I should probably say this next season, which will launch on Halloween with Evil Dead Two—is going to feature thirteen sequels. Yep, it's sequel-centric. It's sequel-centric, and we'll be covering such sequels as Evil Dead 2, Teen Wolf 2. Uh, what else are we looking at? A Rocky, Jaws. Rocky Jaws 4, two. Jaws Rocky 2. Four. Psycho 2. Yeah, I have not seen Psycho 2 yet. I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, Su- Superman 3 is going uh, to be a hot one. Yeah, and you're wondering, does Superman 3 qualify as horror? Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of, yes, one yes, of the most yes. horrible movies ever ever made. Looking forward to, to covering Gremlins Two: The New Batch, which I've never seen, but can't believe it! Can't believe it! I know, but it, I will say I, it was. I, I think that you actually had that film in mind when we launched the podcast. Yeah, this was this was all. How do I get there? Because like some of like we we had already reviews Jaws and Teen Wolf. So uh, following up on those makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But we have not covered Gremlins or the original Psycho or Evil Dead. 
No. Just jumping straight in, straight into the uh, the sequels. That isn't to say that we won't. No, they, I mean uh, we could always. Back. Yeah, yeah, but but we did want to. I mean, it really, Gremlins Two: The New Batch was the inspiration. Yes. For the sequel centric season of Cocoons of Horror, um, which I will mention again is uh, coming out on Halloween. So it's almost as soon as we're done with House of the Dragon, we will jump right into the season, the third season of Cocoons. Is there anything else? Oh, did we even do Cheek Speak? I almost <laughs> lost it again. It's just, so the thing that we opened with talking about that we forgot, we were going to forget. Like, yes. that would have been good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so you could just view it like they've been withholding the cracks from us. Right. They've been holding, they're withholding all of that, that sweet cheek action from us, but it will explode into the season finale. That would be one way to look at this. The other way to look at this is that this show has taught us what to expect, and we would be foolish if we set the line too high. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, because that was a question I think going into this, you know, coming back into the Game of Thrones world was like how much, you know, how much of uh, you know, of body, uh, you know, sex uh, scenes are we gonna get the uh, the sex position and all that, mm-hmm. and we got it, we, and it seemed like we came out the gate right, and we're like, oh, this is gonna be, this is what's gonna be, and mm-hmm. then, and then, and then it just wasn't. It continues to not be. For the most part, I mean, even most, the, most even, things are implied. yeah. Even the super sexual uh, episode with Damon in the pleasure ho- the, the the pleasure dens, right? Right. All of the coupling and whatnot. The one thing that we didn't get was cheeks. So right. All right. So what do you think? I I mean, my temptation would be to set the line at two. Okay. But what do you think about that? Uh, I think it's a good line. Is two and, oh, let me, all right, let me press it a little bit. Is two and a half, does it? Does two and a half feel like too much? I think two and a half puts it in the right level of tension. Okay, does three feel like too much? Three feels, well, this is, now we're doing over under like real time. <laughs> you set the line and then we'll do the over under. <laughs> I'm going to, all right, let me, let me set this as two and a half. And all right, so then if you if I did it at two and a half, what would you? I'm going over. I think they're pulling out all the stops. Okay, I'm gonna go. I under. don't know where I don't know where it's all gonna come from in this particular case. Yeah, I don't know either. But I mean, it could be the dragons. I, you know, we were talking about dragon parts, right? Yeah, it's true. Do dragons actually have cheeks, or is that not part of their anatomy? That's great. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, uh, another question for Martin. I, I, you know, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go ahead. <laughs> is it all? On. Is it all butthole? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 